Hello everybody, thank you very much for downloading this episode of the Cinema Catch-Up Club. For more information, you can visit the Cinema Catch-Up Club's official Facebook page. Just search for the Cinema Catch-Up Club. Or you can visit our website, thoughtjarproductions.com. This podcast is available on iTunes and SoundCloud, and we would really appreciate your subscriptions there, so pick your service of choice. For more information about this and other podcasts we produce, please visit thoughtjarproductions.com. And now, for this week's episode. Okay, testing, testing, one, two, three. Testing, one, two, three. (coughs) Yeah, that's (laughs) just clearing my throat. Hello everyone, and welcome to the Cinema Catch-Up Club. I'm your host, Stephen Platt. Thank you very much for downloading this episode. This week, we have another audience-chosen film. And uh, the film that you have elected to watch, or at least uh, more than 50% of you have, is The Silence of the Lambs. Joining me to review The Silence of the Lambs, we have two guests, someone who has seen the film and someone who has not. Our guest who hasn't seen the film and returning to the podcast, it's David Cox. Hi, David. Hello. Uh, how, how's things? Oh, pretty good. Pretty good. You know, traveling, busy with, with work, etc. A wedding photographer extraordinaire and uh, someone who has not seen The Silence of the Lambs. Which is ridiculous because I'm, I've got a film degree and it's iconic. Like, mm. It's been in my Netflix like to watch list for uh, as long as Netflix has been in Australia. Mm. So a, a little while. <laughs> a while, yeah. <laughs> Um, and what do you know about the Silence of the Lambs? I'm curious. Jodie um, Foster's in it. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, Any he, other actors? He, I mean, well-known, famous, knighted actors, maybe that you know are in it. No. 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 Just, just. It's that. It's that dude. The old dude. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> I know who he is, but his name escapes me. And if I try and guess, I feel as if I might embarrassingly get it wrong. Okay. Um. Yeah. Um. It's it's about Hannibal. He eats people. Is mm-hmm. that the gist of it? Uh, pretty much. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So okay, that's that's where we're coming from. It's just always good to get a, a gauge of what people do or, in some cases, don't know about a film yeah. uh, as we head into it. Joining us as our guest who has seen the film and uh, can probably tell us that that actor's name is Anthony Hopkins. Thank you. He was in Thor Ragnarok. Uh, which you just saw. <laughs> Yeah. I did, that's true. Yeah. He was the old guy that wasn't Sam Neill. Um, but yes, joining us uh, as our person who has seen the film, it's Jess Serio. Hi, Jess. Hello. And uh, you're a big fan of Silence of the Lambs. A little bit, yeah. Yeah, Yeah, just yeah, a little bit. Just a wee bit. I've had a few messages uh, asking politely. Just, yeah. Look, it needs to be done. Mm. In a vague, sort of non-spoilery kind of way for David, um, what what can he expect from from the film we're about to view? Uh, creepiness, a lot of gore, mm-hmm. but old-fashioned gore, uh, so it's good. Like, really good, you know? My favourite. Creepy, old-fashioned gore. Yeah. yeah. But, like, super spooky, because it's, um, it's done in a way that Anthony Hopkins, the way he does it, the way he acts in it, it's just really, really creepy. It's one of his most iconic parts. Mm. Yeah. Like a good good amount of nuance to the... Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Mm. Uh, do you feel suitably braced? 
Yeah, yeah, I think I got it. Okay. I mean, I'm I'm not a big fan of horror, but mm. this will be interesting. This will be fun. Mm. Mm. Fingers crossed. All right. Well, uh, shall we jump into it then? Let's go. Let's do, do this it. thing. All right, uh, ladies and gentlemen at home, uh, prepare your Netflix queues or DVDs and uh, make sure that you rub that lotion into the skin as we prepare to watch The Silence of the Lambs. I can't wait to get that reference. and indeed everyone else who isn't called Clarice. Uh, we've just finished watching Silence of the Lambs, and I'm joined once again by David. Hello. And Jess. Hello. So, David, as the first-time viewer, what did you think of Silence of the Lambs? Like, as in, like, okay. Uh, the int- <laughs> I liked the movie as a whole. Okay. Um, a few things stood out as peculiar. Mm-hmm. Um... In, t- in terms of as a film or, or it, with story elements? Story elements. Okay. Um, I'm just, it's like, it's just odd to be like, the tr- not a true transsexual. This transgender person is a thing of mystery. Mm. And, ooh, symbolic transformation icons surrounded. Um, uh, it was just odd to be like, aha, the villain is, is trans mm. and they do villainous things to be, to be fuel their transness mm. which is just bizarre to me mm. true uh i i, I think it, it it is interesting looking at it uh from a perspective of watching the film there let's see 91 so it's almost 30 years since this film was made um which i i, I suppose it's interesting that maybe and indeed the the, the book in which it's based on is older um I think it's potentially interesting that perhaps, um, yeah, we, we've got a, a, a much different representation of um, the different natures of uh, transsexuality and transgender uh, within the media um, these days. I, th- I think maybe it, 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 it did strike as a bit odd. It, that, that was how I, I felt a little bit watching it's it. It's like intensely dated. It's yeah. Like, it's like watching a movie from the 50s and 60s and like a psychologist is like, so what? trauma made you homosexual like yeah it's it's yeah it it does ring a little um put it politely off uh, (laughs) i think is what i would say um jess um obviously watching this film again for the first time in how long a couple of years uh about two months two months oh okay (laughs) my apologies uh how has your opinion changed a bit in the last eight weeks no (laughs) no i've seen this movie about 12 times mm. and you still very much enjoy it yeah i do enjoy it what is it about this film that you enjoy so much what is it i that... don't know i mm. don't know i think it's just i really love horror movies mm-hmm. it's a genre that i really enjoy and i think just the creepiness of it that i really love i love how they've made it mm. um i love the interactions between hannibal and clarice mm-hmm. i think they're really interesting and Anthony Hopkins is one of my favourite people in the world. Yeah. So I just love any movie he's in. Good. All yeah. right. Beautiful. Um, yeah, it's... I mean, this is the first time I've watched the film properly the whole way through. I'd seen uh, sections or bits here and there. I'd never actually sat down and watched the whole thing. Um, and I really enjoyed it. I, I found it a really enjoyable um, 
thriller, I guess, um, because I, I had a I had a rough idea of what I thought was going to happen because I, d- I didn't know how the, how the uh, film concluded. Oh, okay. Um, but I was... I, I, it was it was a good pacey thriller, I think. Um, it's, I, I yeah the 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 idea of approaching it from the uh, psychological profiling, I thought was um, it was very well told, and I think, uh, uh, you know, this film uh, probably uh, kickstarted a lot of that uh, psychological profiling that appears in a lot of modern uh, cop programs or procedural dramas, um, but I don't think i've seen it as well done as in this film this is this is a very tightly done thing in that respect mm. um yeah i mean obviously it's um it's got an interesting main character in um clarice starling as played by jodie foster um and at the beginning of the film we see her uh, you know going through training drills and then going through these rather boring looking um offices at the fbi and then she gets to um uh dr crawford's sorry, sorry agent crawford's um uh, office, and that's where we're sort of first confronted with any uh, graphic imagery, uh, because you have the photograph stills um, of of some of the victims of this Buffalo Bill character, um, and that sort of mixture of um, like lots of mon- mundane surroundings, like the office was quite dull. It was a lot of brown and cream-coloured walls and furniture, and then even in the office it's reasonably mundane, except for this one wall which has just got gore on it. And I Mm. I, I don't know, David, how did that read to you? Uh, It's, it's, you know, a good bit of cinema, a good bit of storytelling, Uh, it's just very simple sort of pants, like here's some establishing this element of character and this Mm. element of story. Um, I think it did that that pretty effectively. Mm. Like, it is good storytelling, Indeed, I, I think the, the the thing I liked about it is that I feel like it's set up for the rest of the film. The fact that you have a lot of the the mundanity of uh, early 90s American life, uh, but then just occasionally you would get these um, these cut-tos or these, these small focused parts of scenes which were showing uh, the the gore and the, the graphic nature of, um, of you know, of, of what uh, serial killers do and, and what what happens to to people and it's to be honest I, it, it's really well presented i think the director um jonathan demi has done a really good job of presenting that where those shocking moments feel all the more shocking because they're kind of wrapped up in a layer of not boring but but just um every day yeah the everyday the yeah. usual um yeah. And it's, yeah, it's very effective. Um, and obviously, uh, early on, we're introduced to uh, the the very important character of uh, Hannibal Lecter. Mm. Um, and just picking up on what you were saying, Jess, those those scenes between um, Anthony Hopkins and, and Jodie Foster, um, I I thought they were thrilling. I, I really enjoyed the, um, the sort of almost... Uh, conversational fencing that was happening between them mm. it was a very dynamic relationship you mm. know they they kind of clicked well together mm. in a really weird way yeah and uh, part of me viewing it was, tra- was trying to figure out oh how much of that is Hannibal Lecter trying to play Clarice to get what he wants um you know how much of it is him and uh, yeah ultimately I think all of it was but mm. <laughs> it, it is interesting seeing them how, how how he uses his um, 
his, his personal skills, I guess, his mm. people skills, to sort of ingratiate himself with her. Yeah. Mm. It was... Yeah, well, I think he, um, he started off that way at the beginning when he first met her, but then he just got interested mm. in her as a person, just psychologically. Mm. So, because like, at the end where he's in the cage in the, that big room and she comes and visits him, he knew he was going to get out. Mm. So he didn't need to help her there. So he was just interested. Yeah, I suppose. Yeah. Yeah. Could that potentially be viewed as him... No, no, you're right. It is interesting. I was going to say, it could it be potentially viewed as him rewarding her because he does reward her throughout the mm. film with little bits. But no, he pretty much just gained everything in that scene, I guess, mm. where you know, he gets the closure of that backstory and finding out it's the lambs mm. um, that, that it was the reason she ran away from home. Um, yeah, it's it's such a bizarre relationship. It's mm. it's such a classic psychologist thing. So mm. tell me about your childhood. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Dead, you know, you've got a dead parent. Oh, tell me about that. You know, that yeah. kind of thing. How does that make you feel? Yeah, <laughs> it's yeah, it is really, really well told though. It doesn't feel, it doesn't feel cliche. At least that was that was my reading. How did how did you feel, David? About the. Tell me about your childhood. Yeah, well, or just those conversations, because I, I almost feel as though what this film did was create a template for something to become cliche. I guess. <laughs> um, I thought they were good. They're engaging and creepy. And Anthony Hopkins has this weird intensity. I think he blinked twice mm. um, the entire movie. Um, only because I saw him blink once because I was checking and I'm like, oh, I've probably missed once. Hmm. Um, yeah, like it's it's pretty good riveting storytelling to just have two characters basically standing still and talking hmm. for hmm. a good portion of the film. Like that's yeah. when the like the scenes like really get longer compared to everything else. And it still keeps its pace, yeah, um, which is pretty good. Yeah. Well, the interesting about thing about it is, it feels like it's a big portion of the movie with Hannibal and um, Clarice, but it's actually the smallest part of the film. Mm. There's like fifteen minutes or something in total. I think it's, someone added it up. It's not very much. I think in terms of on-screen yeah. time, uh, Anthony Hopkins has well under half an hour yeah. um and it's yeah he's it's, it's one of the um i think he's the actor who's been on screen for the second least amount of time to win an academy award yeah. essentially as that's, as a as a lead that's amazing yeah and it's just not something you notice yeah they only share yeah. four scenes in the film really yeah, yeah. they're only in four scenes together oh. um, jody and anthony and yeah. it's yeah and it, but it feels it, it really is the backbone of the film mm. uh you know it's really um where what carries the film and everything's kind of interwoven around it. Speaking of the the not blinking, um, one of the IMDb trivia facts, which I've uh, just skipped ahead <laughs> to, um, Anthony Hopkins borrowed the non-blinking trait from a friend of his in London who never blinked. Um, <laughs> that unnerved people. That's kind of that's weird. amazing. That yeah. Anthony Hopkins knows a serial killer in real life. I yeah. just think he doesn't blink. Yeah, you know, I think maybe he might be. He just uh, has a, like a spray bottle. For yeah. his eyes. Yeah. <laughs> one of those people that sleeps with his eyes open. Well, the reason yeah. he picked up on it was because everyone got unnerved around this friend mm. of his because he just never blinked, and he went, "Oh, brilliant! I'll keep that." Yeah. yeah. Um, and also, I mean, he he studied 
serial killers as preparation for this role. He went and visited prisons and uh, studied all these different convicted murderers mm. and went to like court hearings for gruesome murders and serial killings just to try and get a, a read of lots of different types of uh, serial killers to try and help inform his role. So like he did serious research into this and mm. I think it tells. I, I yeah. cuz mm. his his amazingly present on screen. Like you can't look away from him. Mm. Well, he's all right up in your face. Mm. Um but yeah, going back a little bit. Yeah, wow, he's really on screen for such a little time. Yeah. Like that and every there are so many elements like like he changes his look like three or four times and it's all iconic. Mm. Like him with the mask, mm. him with the blood on his face. Like, take any any moment and you like dress up as mm. that. And people will, like recognizably Hannibal yeah. Lecter. Mm. Um, and as someone who had very little knowledge of the film, as we previously established, like very little, I thought this film was going to be more about him. Yeah. Mm. And I was surprised as to how little he was in it. Mm. It's a two-hour film, and he is on screen for twenty-four minutes and fifty-two seconds. Amazing. Mm. Second shortest time to ever win an Academy Award, just behind David Niven in 1958's Separate Tables, who was in it for 23 minutes and 39 seconds for those playing at home. Uh, but yeah, so he's he's in just under a quarter of this film, mm. but he is very present. And obviously, you know, manipulating people, pulling a lot of strings, which, oh, yeah. you know, fits into his serial killer profile. Yeah. Um, and you know, sort of leering in the background. And we, the great thing is with him is we only really see one sort of moment of action, which is when he uh, kills the two guards mm. in the uh, in, in the big temporary cell. And it's really, really quite scary, I'll be honest, um, where suddenly he just slaps the cuffs that he's unpicked on the other guard. Mm. And then from that moment on, you're just like... Oh, well, they're dead. Yeah. That's, that, that's them done. He's just sort of playing with his food Yeah. at that point. And I really love something I noticed um, on, on his table. He had a magazine called Bon Appetit. Yeah, yeah I noticed Which that just too. made me laugh a lot when I saw it. Um, but yeah, and, and like using that guy's face over his mm. own face uh, so that they'd get him into the ambulance. Uh, I'd reference it to something like the modern uh, Sherlock series, you know, where they have like something where there's like a, a body swap and... Um, the difference was that this one felt feasible, I guess, where, where you know, he, you, you could conceivably see someone putting a face over uh, their own their own face and, like, pretending to be uh, just about alive and then killing everyone in the ambulance. Um, it was really great. Yeah. Um, I figured that twist out pretty quickly, but I think that's because the idea of putting, like, cutting off someone's face and putting it on your own has, like, sort of seeped into pub culture. Mm. Um, there are... There are a few things in that film that, like, I'd heard, but I didn't realize it was even remotely a reference mm. to this film. Like, the Buffalo Bill, he's like, would you fuck me? I'd fuck me. Mm. I thought that was from a comedy. Mm. <laughs> like, my, my friends would say that as a joke in high school. Mm. I had no idea where it came from. Yeah. And, yeah. Mm. Well, you know, it's... And it's... I finally understand the, the lotion in the bucket reference. Mm. Yeah. Well, you know, it's a funny line, even if it was said mm. by, you know, a horrific serial killer. It's yeah. it's still a, a funny line mm. um, in some respects. And, like, it is it is interesting, that Buffalo Bill character as well, because be- because of the character of Hannibal Lecter, Buffalo Bill almost feels like um, a second-rate villain in his own film. Because yeah. he's the main villain. But he's not the main villain yeah. in that sense. It's a bit like um, uh, 
the, the play um, Armadeus. Mm. The play Armadeus is about the other composer Salieri, but it's also about how much Mozart was better than Salieri. Like that, that's <laughs> that is how it reads, and it's just I, I feel not that you can feel bad for a character who's a serial killer, but it is interesting. You've got this fascinating though potentially quite dated in a lot of respects um caricature of a serial killer mm. who isn't top billing yeah well it's interesting the character in all actually because i mean we know hannibal can play mind games and he can talk people into doing what he wants so did he not and he know, we know that hannibal is more than willing to skin a person mm. so did he not he used to be a patient of Hannibal Lecter, so maybe Hannibal put him on this path. It's a possibility. It wasn't something that was ever explicitly um, uh, stated, I guess, yeah. but, but they obviously had a connection. Mm. Hannibal claims they only met once. Mm. Um, but I could see that. I could definitely see that. I mean, th- that said, I, I should say I haven't seen any of the um, the Hannibal TV series where maybe they explore... Um, his his past life before he was uh, the notorious serial killer um or as he was becoming the notorious serial killer so maybe they cover that in that series or in any of the other material but mm. um yeah it it there is definitely a connection between those two mm. characters um and it is possible one may have trained the other a relationship is established between Clarice and Hannibal and Clarice is trying to use Hannibal as this resource to help them track down Buffalo Bill and she makes this uh, promise um, of a transfer to a cell with a window, basically, because um, the latest victim of Buffalo Bill is the daughter of a senator, and so because of this, um, it's she she essentially lies, which is maybe not the wisest thing to do with with Hannibal Lecter. Is lies to him and says we can get you this better prison, and there's this island where you can go and walk around for a bit with a SWAT team watching you. Um, and obviously it doesn't quite work out because then that idea is stolen by uh, the doctor who's meant to be looking over uh, Hannibal Dr. Chilton, who then makes an actual deal based on that and kind of screws over the case. Um, I, I was expecting slightly more repercussions from Hannibal towards um, towards Clarice for lying to him. And we didn't really get that. Yeah, like he would have known that she was lying. Hmm. He demonstrates a remarkable attitude for figuring that out. Mm. But, um, like you said, Jess, he knows everything mm. already. It's just him... I suppose it's, that would just be part of the game, because they have a conversation where she mm. reveals more about herself, mm. and he's just going along with it just so he can learn more about her. Yeah, it's all a game to him, mm. so... Certainly, and uh, as part of this game, um, you know, he, he gives them clues. He says, uh, obviously, um, his, his clues sort of lead them all around uh, the country. They go to this funeral home to investigate one of the most recent bodies that are found. Um, and again, we, we discover the, the cocoon in the mouth, um, which is one of those things that I thought was going to be bigger in this film as well, because obviously on the poster, there's lots of the um, the desk mask death mask moth imagery um and it wasn't it wasn't as big a thing in this film as i thought it would be it really only pops up a couple of times before we get to um the finale i guess of of seeing the moths um in buffalo bill's house um that said pulling that cocoon out of that lady's mouth 
was really gross. Uh, it, <laughs> like, and I think a large part of that, yeah, it was the sound design. You, yeah, exactly. <laughs> it was the sound of like the 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 picky things, the tweezers in the mouth, and then the glare and out it comes and it's just like and that was a very bad recreation i'm sorry everyone but um steven wants his horror thrillers to be more palpable yeah more easy to consume my goodness when you when you pull a uh, moth case out of a a woman's mouth couldn't you couldn't you make it sound more delightful couldn't you just (laughs) slide it out noiselessly no but it was great and it was like i think that i think there is something in this film for everyone that horrifies them or like disgusts them a bit and i'm curious jess as someone who's watched this a lot what is the thing from this film that still hits you the most impactfully as being that's gross it's a tie mm-hmm. between the head in the jar oh oh yes in the uh, next, storage room yeah next yeah. to the headless mannequin mm. just that's just in the back of a car it's gross mm-hmm. um and the body in the bathtub in the basement yeah, that was that was very uh, sudden. That was gross. Yeah, and I'm I'm not sure who that was meant to be. I presume the previous the, the previous owner. The previous owner um, yeah. But yeah, I saw that and went ooh. <laughs> yeah. You only see it for a second, but yeah. you know exactly what it is. And then it goes straight to black. Yeah. Um, which I think is a really great image to leave um, Jodie Foster's character on to leave Clarice on, of like, oh my god, this dirty, disgusting death bath and darkness. Going back to like things that are horrifying in this movie, mm. another thing that really stuck with me was when it's dark and he's looking at her through the night vision goggles, oh, and yeah. you just see his hand mm. inches from her face, and she has no idea. Yeah. So it made my it makes my skin crawl every time. Yeah, that that toying with with her when she's in that vulnerable situation, mm. which is kind of a serial killer's modus operandi, I guess. Is this kind of what they they do? I don't know whether that should be surprising, but it was so effective seeing it, particularly with um, obviously Clarice stumbling around in the dark. Mm. Um, it's very affecting, mm. very very affecting. And you're right, it's it's uncomfortable, and it's that it's that abuse of of other people that comes with something like serial killers, which I think is is partly what makes people fascinated in it as a subject matter, but it is revolting. I think that's something that you always should get back to as a touch base when you're thinking about this, where it's like, this is an interesting subject, but also that's really gross, and I do not like these people. And I think we definitely get that with the character of uh, uh, Jamie Gum with, with Buffalo Bill. Um who, interestingly enough, going to the IMDb, uh, was uh, sort of a combination of a few real-life serial killers. Um, Ed Gein, who uh, skinned his victims. Ted Bundy, who did the cast-on-the-hand trick. Uh, So you know how he uh, tricked um, the lady saying he had the cast-on-the-hand? That was something Ted Bundy uh, did um, to kidnap his people. And uh, Gary Heidnick, who uh, kept women in a pit in the basement. Um, So it was interesting seeing this Buffalo Bill character taking on traits of all these real uh, cases and real people from um, like the 70s and the 80s. But one of the other things that struck me about this was that the whole time we are like, yep, uh, Buffalo Bill is a horrific character, uh, no redeeming qualities whatsoever. Whereas I feel the character of Hannibal is slightly set up in a way to make the audience not not root for them but sort of be more accepting of them because they're because he's clever mm. i i don't know did, did that read to you in that way jess yeah it did it did it's it's because he's helping the police mm. whereas buffalo bill is helping himself 
So you kind of root for the person that's going after the evil person, regardless of their morals. Well, uh, th- th- that's the thing, though, is is I'm not entirely convinced Hannibal is really doing it for noble purposes of I've turned over a new leaf. I mean, we, we see <laughs> he very clearly is still on the same side of that leaf when he straight up murders two people and then some others in an ambulance um, just to gain his freedom. Um, I, I just... I. Set, that ending is is interesting where it's set up where um he, obviously he he's in a location where dr chilton is and he says you know brilliantly um i'm having a friend for dinner um and i found myself going oh good he's going to eat dr chilton because yeah. dr chilton <laughs> is a wanker um as is established but you know that's to the benefit of hannibal mm. it's about depth Really, because, yeah. like, objectively, Hannibal is the most evil character. Hmm. Well, I mean, Ty, perhaps. Um, it's But Buffalo Bill is just this very two-dimensional, simplistic, negative stereotype of, of, a, of a trans woman. Hmm. Um, and then Hannibal is interesting. You know, he plays off people, he has depth, we actually can think about things about what his character is like as opposed to just well this weirdo skins people Mm. um and and that just makes him more interesting not like we don't i don't necessarily want him to achieve goals Mm. but like he's just a a more interesting character to watch yes i agree and also more interesting performance but but partly because of writing partly because it's it's anthony hopkins Mm. um just literally chewing the scenery uh, in some cases um, <laughs> and just doing a really wonderful performance. It's it's just one of those interesting things, I guess, when when you look at... You look at things like um, the, the morality of this as well. Um, you know, and I, I don't think the film should be set up and going, yes, these are the morals and hooray, everything achieves and it's great. Um, it, it is interesting that you have that complexity and that... You know, on that conversation at the end when um, Hannibal rings up Clarice just after her graduation and basically says, I'm still out there, ha ha ha, essentially. Um, she is just still on the phone after he's hung up, going, Dr. Lecter, Dr. Lecter, like desperate to maintain that connection. And whether that's because she's somewhat under his thrall or whether that's because she now has a new lamb to be silenced i guess because yes they were able to catch um buffalo bill and save um catherine but in doing so another arguably worse serial killer is now out in the world and about to have some um dr chilton for for tea Mm. um it's fascinating Mm. it's really interesting seeing that seeing that perspective one other note i made um before we uh continue I just wanted to point out this film has the worst moustache um, <laughs> of anyone in in the cinema. Um, uh, I mean, Sergeant Tate, uh, as played by. Have you by... seen the latest Murder on the Orient Express? Look, it's look. Okay, I haven't. I know what you're talking about. But I've seen. <laughs> I've seen images. No, no moustaches like that. Like, no, but that, that's bizarre. But it's Poirot. <laughs> Poirot's allowed a he stupid. He has mustache. an iconic moustache already. <laughs> yeah, he doesn't need a redesign. Well, it's not David Suchet anymore. We're gonna, you know, we're gonna dress it up. You know, Thor had a haircut. Poirot can have a new moustache. That's that's how it works. Um, but but I would say this is worse, just by virtue of it being 
just it doesn't look good at all and like they're doing all this serious SWAT business and Sergeant Tay as played by Danny Durst is running around with like like someone's drawn on him with hair like it like he's just got this like <laughs> super narrow pointy mustache and it it really undermined it i was trying to think like how could you undermine a character worse and i was like i'm trying to imagine him but instead of the mustache he just had an eight ball taped to his head and nobody spoke about it that, that's what it felt like <laughs> It was, it's, it was the early 90s. Even Superman had a mullet. Okay, but but that, that moustache was just terrible. It was it was the thing that threw me most in this film, in this film with like, people wearing other people's faces. The moustache of Sergeant Tate was just... It just threw me completely. I, I, couldn't, I, couldn't, I couldn't take him seriously. I couldn't just, focus. Just imagine if the face that Hannibal had to cut off had a terrible moustache. Like, oh, oh he's, he's, he's still alive, but eh, leave him. He has a weird moustache. Yeah. <laughs> just um, at the hospital. Mm, yeah, just, just a bad moustache. <laughs> so, you're alive. I was like, what, what happened? Oh, we had to shave your moustache. <laughs> oh, thank God. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I also liked that at the end when they've rescued uh, Catherine that she keeps the dog. She won't let go of the dog. Yeah. Uh, she's decided, no, I've survived and I'm keeping your dog, Mother Ether. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> I win. Well, for her psychologically, it mm. would be a lifeline for her. You know, she finally yeah. got this dog. Yeah, and it was something she did to take control. Like, she yeah. was holding um, the dog hostage, essentially. Yeah. And making Buffalo Bill, like, you know, get me a telephone. He's actually up there, like, freaking out, not sure what to do when mm. um, Clarice turns up. Yeah. Do you think she stuffs it? Like, ten years down the line, she's mm. keeping this trophy. She might just keep the fur. <laughs> just as a nice as a nice touch. <laughs> this, is, uh, this is actually the uh, prequel to 101 Dalmatians. Mm. Well, yeah. <laughs> yeah. She's Catherine. from Relativeville. <laughs> yeah. That's that's the trauma no. that sets her I'm off. I'm going to make a origin story <laughs> out of 101 dead dogs. What <laughs> <laughs> uh, if oh every God. movie ever is linked in the weird time traveling warped way? Yeah, you know that I'm accepting that as canon now. That yep. Catherine Martin grows up to be Cruella Deville and travels back in time. 100. percent Yeah, wonderful. All right, uh, I've got some more bits of IMDb trivia if you'd like to uh, hit me. Sure. Okay. Um, Jodie Foster claims that during the first meeting between Lecter and Starling, Anthony Hopkins mocking her southern accent was improvised. And it horrified her horrified reaction was genuine because she felt personally attacked. <laughs> yeah. um, but, but she said it was great because uh, obviously she got a really honest reaction on the screen. And it was just one of those things where it was like, that, this is great. Like afterwards, she re- but I just like at the time he just mocked her accent. She's like, how dare you? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You nasty serial killer, you. Ooh. That's similar to the um, little noise he makes, that mm. that noise that he was doing that on set just to freak her out. Mm. And they said, actually, that's quite good. Let's put that in the, sh- in yeah. the movie. And it is an unsettling noise. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I, I mean, I don't think I've had Chianti, but I don't think it makes you do that. No. <laughs> or indeed, human liver. Um, Anthony Hopkins uh, was cast as Hannibal Lecter because of his performance in The Elephant Man back in 1980. Um the director, uh, Mr. Deme, um, liked his performance, but it confused Anthony Hopkins, who said Dr. Trevors, who was his character, was a good man. And Deme said, mm, so is Lecter. He's, he's a good man. He's just trapped inside an insane mind. <laughs> End quote. I'm not sure about that director <laughs> in yeah. that sense. We should um, check in on that director. What yeah. is he doing now? You know what? I'm gonna, I'm gonna, we'll have a look later. We'll, we'll follow, yeah. follow up after this. 
Um, how big is his basement? So the Science of the Lambs was inspired by a real-life relationship between the University of Washington criminology professor uh, Robert Keppel and the serial killer Ted Bundy, previously mentioned. Uh, Bundy helped Keppel investigate the Green River serial killings in Washington. Um, Now, Bundy was executed back in 1989, and the Green River killings were finally solved in 2001. Um, But it was through um, the relationship between Keppel and Bundy that Keppel was able to get, like, a profile on the... um, to to sort of build up his database to uncover the actual killer, who was um, Gary Ridgway, so... A little bit of actual history. Maybe that's why this feels so real, because in a lot of ways it, it is real. It's, um, you know, it, it there is so much of the real world of um, the FBI and of criminal profiling in this film. It just adds it that credence, I guess. Mm. Well, the realer you make it, the more it's going to affect the audience. Mm. Indeed. Um, yeah. actually, Jodie Foster spent a great deal of time with... Uh, actual FBI agent Mary Ann Krause prior to filming. It was Krause who gave Foster the idea of Starling um, standing by her car crying because Krause uh, said at times the work is just so overwhelming. That was something that she used to do to like get her emotional release. It was just if no one was around, just have a good cry against the car. Oh, yeah. Mm. Fun times. Woo! <laughs> the FBI were very impressed by the film's accuracy in depicting the investigations, the serial killers and their victims, but they did protest against Clarice discovering Buffalo Bill on her own because inexperienced agents are not sent on dangerous assignments by themselves. Um, which was something I was thinking at the point. I was like, I, I mean, she found him by accident, I guess. She was like, she was expecting an old lady. Oh, the, the, the killer's here. Whoops. Um, but yeah, that... that that bit was a bit um it was important for the film to have the one-on-one confrontation between Clarice and Buffalo Bill but I suppose in a real world setting it might feel a little bit um unprofessional and slapdash maybe I'm just amazed that someone actually praised the accuracy of any element of the film Mm. well I mean yeah no I mean it wasn't a perfect score Mm. B plus B plus for the accuracy yeah, it's like, oh, you know, a lot of that was accurate, except for the end. Don't do that. Mm. Don't do that, kids. Yeah. You're not... A, don't do not do that. Mm. Well, you know, I mean, they're the FBI, you know, they yeah. like to they like to investigate things, yeah. generally. So, you know, they'd be going, hey, this film you did, pretty good, but <laughs> just a tiny thing. Um, one of the potential other actors that could have played Hannibal Lecter, this is before Anthony Hopkins was brought Do we want to take, take bets? Go ahead. Oh, you probably already know. I I have no idea. Okay. Oh, I don't know why I said this. I don't have any idea. Okay, an older male <laughs> actor from say thirty years ago who was popular in films. Oh God, Jack why Nicholson? have I done this to myself? Jack yes. Nicholson's not a bad shout. Yeah, yep. Not Thank correct, you. but it's not a bad shout. <laughs> um, Gene Hackman. I don't know him. Who's he? What's he been in? Um, Gene Hackman was in Welcome to Mooseport. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> He, he, he has an amazing film career, but I always think of Welcome to Mooseport first, which was a comedy he did with Ray Romano. Oh, all right. He's, okay. been, he's been in lots of things. Cool. Um, but he, he had the rights to the novel, uh, which he was planning on... Um, he, he wanted to direct the film and potentially play uh, Lecter or, or Jack Crawford, um, but withdrew after watching himself in Mississippi Burning, which was in 1988, because he, he was uneasy about taking more violent roles. Um, and obviously in Mississippi Burning is a little bit violent, uh, and he decided, actually, I don't feel, I don't feel right for this. So um, 
it, it could could have been very different. I as much as I think Gene Hackman's a very good actor, I don't think he would have made this the iconic role that it is. A couple of the other actors who were considered for the role of um, Hannibal Lecter. And I just want a simple sort of yes, no, whether you think they would have been, they would have done a good enough job to make this a good film. Okay. John Hurt. Yes. Mm. Yes. Mm, I, I could see that. Yeah, yeah. I could see Different, it. but yeah. Hello, Clovis. Yeah, it's the voice. <laughs> Tell me. What voice? What happened at the farm? Um, okay, this <laughs> this one. Uh, Christopher Lloyd. No. Mm. No, yes. he's too connected to my childhood. <laughs> you say yes, Jess? Yeah, I think he could do a creepy mm. old man. I mean, I've really seen well. I, I've seen his creepy uh, Willy Wonka for... Uh, it was like, I think it was a college humour thing where they redid uh, like a trailer of Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory, but as a horror... And Christopher Lloyd was the horror version of Willy Wonka. And he was pretty creepy in that. Yeah, I think he could be quite good. But I, I think he, he's better with um, a certain bombacity to his mm. characters. And I don't think Hannibal Lecter should be Which bombastic. Which is interesting because he's a very quiet man. Mm. Yes. Oh, did you have you met him? I've seen him on stage at Supernova. Okay. He's a very quiet man. I've met him. Oh, have you? Yeah. I've got a photograph and everything. Yeah, I know. I know, he was very nice. I'm so jealous. Yeah. Um, but despite the fact I've met him, I wouldn't cast him in that role. <laughs> um, Dustin Hoffman? No. No, I don't think so. Oh, hello, Clarice. Hello. I can only imagine him in like a, an expensive suit living in a high rise. You know, no. I can't see him in a jail cell. Um, Jack Nicholson, which you yeah. mentioned previously. So I, I think maybe he yeah. could have done it. Um, Sir Patrick Stewart? Ooh. Maybe, yeah, possibly. I mean, this was this was around the time he was uh, starring in Star Trek, so it's that era. Patrick Stewart. I think maybe he'd be almost a bit too um, formal for yeah. that role. You know, maybe. ah, hello, Clarice, <laughs> that kind of thing. It's yeah. Like, let me, let's talk about your history and then recite some Shakespeare, and then I'll play the flute. <laughs> <laughs> um, and the last one I have here, uh, and someone who actually turned it down. Jeremy Irons. Die Hard 3. Oh. <laughs> um, uh, I'm okay. sorry, there are only two Die Hards oh, worth okay. watching. Okay. <laughs> and that's um, the fourth one and the <laughs> fifth one. <laughs> um, Jeremy Irons, uh, he m- more recently is Alfred in the current oh. Batman. Oh. I would 100% watch that. Yeah. Hello, Clarice. Because uh, obviously I he love did him he, so much. he did all those riddles and stuff in Die Hard Three, where he's like, yeah. "I met a man going to St. Hives." He talks like that. Yes, yes, Clarice. He is a bastard. <laughs> uh, again, it wouldn't take it seriously, so maybe not, Jeremy. Um, and finally, finally, there is a cameo in this film from uh, the recently departed George A. Romero, um, horror film director, creator of uh, Night of the Living Dead. Oh yeah. Um, he is the bearded man who accompanies Chilton and the two guards and forcibly removes uh, Clarice from her final meeting with Lecter. Um, yeah. Oh, that's so, pretty, okay. I wouldn't have caught out on that. Yeah. That's well, pretty neat. I mean, yeah. I mean, I didn't r- recognize it was him. It was just <laughs> reading through these notes. I went, oh, it was George Romero. Wow. Let's score the film. We'll start with you, Dave, um, because this was your first time viewing the film. What score would you give Silence of the Lambs? Out of ten. Good question, Stephen. Thanks for asking. Um, <laughs> I would give it seven. 
uh, out of ten. Okay, seven. So yeah. good, but not outstanding. Well, I mean, there are some very good elements of storytelling. Um, there's some excellent acting in it, but just Buffalo Bill as this really problematic, weird character that plays into this weird idea that trans women are fake and dangerous. Mm. It's just really brought me out of it for a moment. Yeah, knocks, knocks just, a point or two off. Step back and be like, whoa, okay, that exists. Mm. So, okay, seven. Yeah. Beautiful. Jess, we know you're a big fan of this film. What score would you give it out of ten? Nine. Yep. Yeah, it's it's one of my favourite films. Mm. No, that's, that's absolutely fair. Um, I really enjoyed it. I enjoyed it more than I thought I would. Um, I think it's very well told. I think that it's pretty well shot as well um it does have problematic elements um i i I also think a couple of bits early on are a little slow but that's partly just because you know it's building up the pace and also it's given that there is a certain level of realism to it you know it's not going to be all running around and car chases Mm. and things like that um which it doesn't have to be uh and i i did appreciate the way that they actually managed to throw in a bit of intrigue and high octane action um into the escape of of Hannibal Lecter um which was it was it was it was good and i i enjoyed it i i think oh, overall i would have to give it um seven and a half the world's worst mustaches out of 10 that would be my my God. score come on that's what? that's like four, 15 out of 20 Come on, you've got ten stars. Yeah, you gonna you're really gonna uh, seven and a half. Seven seven and a half. How about seven and two point five? That's just silly, David. Yeah, like, <laughs> in particular. <laughs> Calm down. Uh, okay, okay. I will... If you wanted to give it like a Rotten Tomatoes score out of a hundred percent, I'd give it seventy five. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yes. Uh, so that is our review of the Science of the Lambs, uh, David and Jess. Thank you very much for reviewing this film. You are very welcome. You're welcome. And for those of you listening at home, thank you very much for listening. And indeed, uh, for those of you who are our Patreons, thank you very much for all your suggestions for the film. And indeed, uh, thank you to everyone who voted for this film. There will be another uh, film coming up very shortly uh, for our Christmas selection. Ooh. Yes. Excellent. Ooh. I like that. Ooh. Um, thank you. Yes. Uh, so uh, make sure that you Is check... It- I'm sorry to interrupt. No, go ahead. Is it, is it is it starring Tim Allen by any chance? Well, that's just it, Dave. Um, it's entirely up to our Patreons to select the different films they'd like to see, and then up to anyone at home. Santa to Claus vote. conquers Mars. Excuse me. Well, if you <laughs> if you if you become a patron, David, you you are welcome to suggest that film, and we'll see if it makes the list. I am going to jot down though. Santa Claus conquers Mars. Okay. Um. But yes, uh, yes. If you, in fact, if you are a patron at home and you agree with David and go, yes, I want to see this uh, <laughs> this uh, North Pole dwelling uh, gift giver taking on the Martian race, then by by all means, uh, suggest it, and we'll see if the public vote for it. And that can be done at patreon.com forward slash ccuc podcast. That's patreon.com forward slash ccuc podcast. For more information about the podcast, you can visit our website, thoughtjarproductions.com, or indeed our Facebook page at the Cinema Catch-Up Club. And uh, make sure that you're subscribed on iTunes or SoundCloud or indeed any podcasting or catching device 
at your disposal. But that is all, so until next time, goodbye. You can say bye too if you want. I mean, if we want. Yeah. Goodbye, Clarice. He doesn't want to. (laughs) (laughs) Podcast is done. Yeah. You have been listening to a Thought Jar Productions podcast. For more information, please visit thoughtjarproductions.com.